Hello everyone, Noah Tetzner here, host of Stories of the Second World War. Today I wanted to let you know that in addition to Stories of the Second World War, I've just released a new history podcast. It's called Victoria's World, a 15-episode exploration of life and death during the reign of Queen Victoria. Through interviews with scholars, biographers, and artists, this show will consider all aspects of the Victorian era. The podcast is also a part of the renowned Searcy Institute Podcast Network, one of the most reputable names in podcasting. In just a few moments, I'm going to play you a sample episode from the podcast that will bring you on a tour of Victorian London through the eyes of author Charles Dickens. I hope you enjoy it and will consider subscribing to my brand new podcast. You can find Victoria's World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, I present to you an episode of Victoria's World. This is Victoria's World. I'm Noah Tetzner. The city of Victorian London was as modern and industrial as the empire that governed it. Throughout British history, London has always played a critical role in some fashion. But it was during the Victorian era that it became a modern hub of national industry. Charles Dickens was a great recorder of London during this time and walked tens of miles throughout the city. On his regular walks, he observed the happenings and occurrences of London's six million inhabitants, which can be read about in his famous literary works. Today I'm eager to travel back in time and experience London through the eyes of Charles Dickens, and discover what life was really like for the different kinds of people who lived there. Today I'm joined by Judith Flanders, a New York Times bestselling author and one of the foremost social historians of the Victorian era. She's the author of a book titled The Victorian City, Everyday Life in Dickens, London, which was a finalist for the 2014 Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Judith Flanders, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm so excited um, to explore our topic of discussion today, which is London during the Victorian era. Well, the first question I'll ask you today is indeed a very basic question. What was significant about the city of London during the Victorian era? London was, in the 19th century, undergoing a transformation that no city in the past had ever seen before. When the century began in 1800, a lot of it was old. Um, Much of London dated to its reconstruction after the Great Fire of London in 1666. So a lot of the city was 17th century. But it was also becoming new because the Industrial Revolution was gathering pace and modernity was changing the city as its population watched. It had new railways, it had street lighting, it had hundreds of innovations. And apart from anything else, this meant that London for most of the century was one enormous building site. In 1800, London was already the largest city the world had ever known. 
It had more than a million inhabitants, and it was double the size of the next largest city in the world, which was Paris. Half a century later, in 1850, that had nearly trebled to three million people. And by 1900, it had more than doubled again to 6.5 million people. In that period, six million houses had been built, as well as new roads being constructed. Hundreds of new roads had been constructed, shops that had been opened, offices that had been built, railways had arrived in the city, um, railways had arrived in the world, in London, the underground, the subway system had opened in the 1860s, the world's first underground system. The sewers had been built, the water mains had been developed. All the infrastructure of modernity that we take for granted arrived in London. It arrived in London almost uniquely first, and it arrived in this enormous rush. So within 75 years, you saw a 17th century city turn into a 20th century city. So it wasn't that London's it wasn't that London was the world's biggest and most modern city, although it was both. It was the speed with which it became those things, the staggering nature of the transformation. Fascinating, fascinating. I'm curious what connection did the famous writer Charles Dickens have to the city of London? And what does he himself tell us about the Victorian city in his works? Well, the short answer, of course, for me as a Dickens lover is everything. Dickens was the greatest recorder the London streets had ever known. It was through his eyes that the world knew something called Dickensian. However, I mean, interestingly and oddly, he wasn't born in London at all. He was born in Portsmouth, which is a sea town um, in 1812. So one of the things to remember, of course, is that Dickens, despite the fact that we call him Victorian, was not technically Victorian. Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837. So Dickens was already a grown man by that time. The thing that most people know about Dickens is that he was sent to work as a small child in a blacking factory. We know that even though no one today knows what a blacking factory is. What actually happened was that Dickens's father, who worked in uh, worked for the Navy, but in an office, uh, he wasn't a sailor, was imprisoned for debt. And the young Dickens, uh, he was 12, was taken out of school. His entire family, apart from him, his younger brothers and sisters and his mother, all moved, as was possible in those days, into the prison with his father, while Dickens, as a 12-year-old child, lived alone and went to work for a distant relation who owned this blacking factory. Blacking is actually shoe polish. And every day he walked the couple of miles to work. He worked in this factory and he walked home. His father's financial position was temporarily resolved. Dickens went back to school. And then a few years later, when he was 15, they needed his earning power again. He left school, and that was the last he saw of education. So this was hugely important because this was the London that Dickens wrote about, not the fancy world of the aristocracy, 
not the London that most fiction was about, not, not rich people, but of working men and women. He had lived and worked among them. He knew these people who made up the bulk of the population. And so almost for the first time, readers could read novels about lives like their own, taking place in the very streets they worked every day. By the time Dickens was 24, he was writing his first novel, The Pickwick Papers, which um, was issued in monthly parts. You got a few chapters each month. And this story of Mr. Pickwick, a middle-class man and his servant and the working people around him, became a hit. It sold nearly 40,000 copies every month. And then Dickens did something that is... Hard to believe that anyone had ever done before or has ever done since. Nine months before he finished uh, the Pickwick Papers, Dickens began to write Oliver Twist, his next novel. And before he was halfway through that book, still not 26 years old, he began his third novel, Nicholas Nickleby. So here he is writing almost simultaneously three smash hit novels, and all are, at least in major part, set in the working class and the lower middle class world of London. And in these novels and in the novels that followed, Dickens described this world as though no one had ever seen it before. And after he described it, no one would ever be able to see it again except through his eyes. Over his life, um, over 50 years he lived in nearly 25 different addresses in London and across the whole of London. So he knew the area as well. And he walked, my God, he walked. His friends were happy to accompany him on what he called his little breathers, because those only went up for about five miles but they learned to be a little wary of his walks that he called his busters because those could last for 30 miles. And then after these walks, he would write down what he saw, both in his fiction and in journalism. And so he described, but he also created the city that we think we know. And Towards the end of his life, one of his friends said that if you gave Dickens the name of almost any street in London, he could tell you what was in it, what each shop in the street was, what the name of the grocer on the street was, and even how many scraps of orange peel there were on the pavement. Wow. Wow. Are there any particular descriptions of London in Victorian literature, any things that tell us what the city was like that we should bear in mind? The interesting thing about reading about London in the 19th century is that if you read Londoners' descriptions, they take so much for granted, as we all do. If a New Yorker writes about New York, a Chicago resident writes about Chicago. No one says, wow, look at the tall buildings. It's for, taken for granted. No one in Los Angeles says, hey, look at the freeways. So one of the interesting things about London, because it was so big, because it was so modern, people came from all over the world and wrote about it. 
And there are hundreds of books of memoirs of European or American travelers reporting on what they saw. And through their eyes, we can see London in all its strangeness and differences. For example, one of the things that everyone commented on was the noise. Um, You have to remember you're talking about a society that is entirely horse-drawn for transport. So you've got paving stones on the roads. You've got the iron-shod horses' hooves hitting the roads. You then have uh, pneumatic tires, of course, have not are not, are not invented till the very, very end of the century. So you've got usually iron-bound tires. You've got iron axles. So you've got this tremendous noise as the carriages and coaches and omnibuses move along the city. And that's before you start um, with all the people on the streets, because unlike today, you had an enormous street population. You had huge numbers of people selling food, selling drink, selling clothes, selling everything you can think of on the streets. And, of course, they all went along shouting, telling you what they were selling. Then everyone else had to shout to be heard above them. And the noise was tremendous. One Londoner um, himself said it sounded like Niagara Falls when he went there. It was that loud. It was that continuous roar, the uninterrupted and crashing sound that made it difficult, sometimes impossible, to hear often inside a building as well as out. Um, I read the memoirs of one American minister who went to church in London, and he said he sat right near the pulpit, and he couldn't hear the sermon for the noise from the street outside. And even suburban streets had that kind of noise. One woman lived in a side street, not a main street, and she wrote, I have an everlasting sound in my ears of men, women, children, omnibuses, carriages, coaches, wagons, carts, bells, doorbells, church bells. And it's notable. Dickens rarely comments on the noise because he's used to it. It's what he lives in. But it's noticeable, for example, in Dickens's novels, that when characters are on the street, one often says to the other, let's turn aside into this smaller street so that we can talk. They simply cannot hear each other on the streets. How interesting. And if one were to travel back in time and walk along the city streets, what would one see? Are there any notable constructions or elements of the city of London that came about during this era? The challenge, I think, would be to find somewhere that wasn't under construction in the 19th century. London was an enormous building site. Most of the 19th century buildings that people remark on today as they walk through London are, in fact, late 19th century buildings. So a lot of London was actively created during the 19th century. For example, the most famous thing that visitors know is Trafalgar Square. In 1800, Trafalgar Square did not exist 
It was built. It was created out. Uh, buildings were knocked down. Other roads were diverted. Roads, new roads were driven in. And Trafalgar Square was built. For example, we have newspaper reports that when Nelson's column was put up in Trafalgar Square, there are reports that the column and the statue on top was floated down the river on a barge. And when it got to the nearest point to Trafalgar Square, it was then put on um, rollers and it was pulled up to the new Trafalgar Square by 22 horses. It was that big and that heavy. So the big things in London are different, but so are the small things. In the 19th century, over 6 million houses were built. Most Londoners today live in houses that were built in the 19th century. Um, the streets, the street patterns are Victoria. The railways arriving threw up more construction. And London is quite unusual in European cities. There is not a railway, well, there's one railway centre station in the centre of London. But otherwise, they sort of ring the West End and the city of London. They're on the very outskirts of the centre of London. So these huge railway projects were built um, to not come into the centre because the land was too expensive and the rich people didn't want their nice lives uprooted. And so instead, the railways were mostly diverted into slum districts. Um, the poor people were all turned out of their houses because they didn't own them. They rented them. They moved into new areas, which in turn um, became overcrowded. So you have this constant movement of people. Um, and even the river, um, the Thames was altered by construction. Were there any individuals who shaped London during the Victorian era, notable contributors to the city's culture or influence? Well, I think maybe one of the most influential has been one of the most invisible. And this is where the construction on the river comes in. In the summer of 1858, London suffered through what has become known um, as the Great Stink. The river that runs through the centre of London, the Thames, had been used from time immemorial, both as the source of drinking water and, unfortunately, as the destination for the city's sewers. By the mid-century, the population growth, combined with the growth of industry, leather tanning factories, um, slaughterhouses, fish markets, breweries, uh, coal shipping wharves, all of this all along the river meant that more and more waste was being dumped in the river. There was a heat wave in the summer of 1858, um, and combined with all of this waste and sewage that was dumped in the river, the river, the water shrank because of the, of the weather. The effluent that was revealed by the shrinking river, the rotting waste, began to ferment in the sunlight. 
And so the air all the way along the river, which includes the Houses of Parliament, became so foul that no one could breathe. And so magically, um, the government of the day, which inconveniently was sitting right on the river, they found the money to build a proper sewer system, which the city had been begging for for years, but the money was never found. Now, when Parliament was inconvenienced, magically it was. The plan had long been put forward by an engineer named Joseph Bazalgette, and his idea was that the sewers should all run down towards the river, which is essentially downhill, into a big intercepting sewer, which would then whisk everything away to great pumping stations outside the city. And his innovation was that these intercepting sewers could be put into the river and land would be reclaimed above it so that the flooding, which London was regularly exposed to, would also be diminished. And this was done. This enormous project was done in an amazing six years from the Great Stink. Um, In six years after that, the first pumping station was opened uh, by the Prince of Wales, which shows you how important Londoners thought it was. And within another two years, cholera, a waterborne disease which had ravaged London for three decades, not surprising if your drinking water is coming from the same place that your sewers are emptying into, cholera was now almost entirely eradicated, all due to Joseph Bazalgette. I find it really interesting when talking about the individuals who shaped the city of London during the Victorian era, that it's oftentimes people who we wouldn't think about. It's not military commanders or scientists or politicians, but rather engineers that make our daily lives more convenient. Uh, I'm also reminded of the great engineer of the Victorian era, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who, although not solely responsible for work involving the city of London, his work can still be seen and is celebrated today. Uh, I believe in a poll in 2002 uh, conducted by the BBC, Brunel was ranked as being one of the most influential Britons of all time. Indeed, I think he took number two out of 100. And that's because of his inventions. notably the Clifton Suspension Bridge, which was uh, the first of its kind uh, of suspension bridges, as well as a tunnel, the first tunnel that had been built under a navigable river. And, you know, we, we really don't think about that a lot today in terms of transportation, normally because transportation is not something that involves ordinary human beings, transportation on a large scale. I should say. But really, when talking about the individuals of the Victorian era, of which we'll talk about many on this podcast, I'm sure, uh, we really ought to keep in mind those engineers whose work is largely invisible to the ordinary eye. What was everyday life like for the people living in London during this time, both impoverished and affluent? 
Well, one of the biggest changes from today is the length of the working day. Many, if not most people, worked 10, 12, even 14-hour days. And before that, they walked to work, and then after that, they worked home again. They were endless days. And the thing that we forget, it's so easy when we watch costume drama on television or movies to forget how different everything was. We think, oh, they're the same as us. They just wear different clothes and they have bad dentists. But everything was different. Um, If you had to work a 12-hour day and you had to get up an hour beforehand, two hours beforehand to to walk to work, um, how do you get up without an alarm clock? Alarm clocks don't come into use till the 1870s. So, for instance, you would ha- you could pay somebody um, to what was called knock you up. And no, it doesn't mean the same thing in England. A knocker up was somebody, um, usually a night worker, who was coming off his shift for a few pennies a week. He would stop and either bang on your door or, with a big stick, knock on your window um, until he heard somebody inside shouting, all right, we're up, and know that the worker he had been paid to wake up was awake. Um, most of the working classes couldn't afford to live in houses um, or even more than one room. They might have access to a communal kitchen, but more often they cooked in the fireplace in their rooms. So to boil a kettle before going to work, leaving the fire to burn in an empty room was both costly and time-consuming. There was no point. Water was also rare and precious in working-class houses. There was usually no running water at all. You had to collect it from a street pump, uh, which only ran for a few hours a day if you were lucky. And, of course, if you're working, you're not there anyway. In addition, there's no storage space. There were routine infestations of vermin. You got paid so that you could only buy food for a day at a time. So for all those reasons, most people did not eat at home. For us, eating at home is more economical than eating out. In the 19th century, for all these reasons, eating out um, was much more sensible. So the workers being woken up by the knocker up. He gets up, she gets up, they go out, and on the way into work, as they're walking along, they will pass a coffee stall. And these might be anything from a bare board laid over a pair of sawhorses with a single urn kept hot by a small charcoal fire, or they might be almost temporary little restaurants with kind of canvas sidings to protect their customers from the weather. But whatever they were, the the, the workers marched through the dark to work. They had a cup of coffee on the way and some bread and butter to power them. Work also was very different. Um, It was unrelenting and it was also unreliable. Um, Even those with solid jobs found it, it we can't imagine what these lives were like most laborers both skilled and unskilled 
were hired by the day or at best by the job. Um, many workers uh, with skills, tailors, cobblers, people with a specific trade, would go to a specific pub, which was known as the House of Call, where anybody who wanted to hire, say, a tailor or a shoemaker or whatever, would know to go. And they would sit around and they would wait and hope to get work. Um, The dockyards in London, which hired millions of men um, every day, skilled workers had permanent jobs, but two-thirds of the dock workers were hired by the day. And they just showed up at seven every morning, uh, thousands of men standing in a yard and jumping up and down and waving their arms, hoping that the foreman would choose them. And after the foreman had filled his quota, many would still hang around waiting in case a ship arrived late and they needed an extra worker. So a hundred or more men would wait for the chance that five or six might be needed so they could earn fourpence an hour. I mean, desperate, desperate lives. And, of course, you have to remember that in the 19th century, many of the workers were not men and women. They were children. Um, For example, just to take a random uh, job that you would see enacted on the street every day, there were newsboys because the newspapers There were not merely the big newspapers like the Times, but there were dozens and dozens of smaller papers in every community. And it was almost always boys who sold the papers. And we have um, the report of one boy. He actually recorded what he did every day. And his day began three hours before dawn, when he walked to work, he went to the printers where the newspaper was printed, he collected the papers ordered by the, his news agent who employed him, and they carried them off to the main post office where they were mailed off to subscribers who lived in the country. After that, the rest of them would go to the news agent shops, and from there they would go out on local rounds. Um, delivering papers. And they had a very interesting system in the 19th century. Some people just bought a paper every day the way we do, Um, but papers were very expensive. So other people would rent them for a set number of hours, and the cost depended on how many hours the household kept the paper and which hours were more popular. Obviously, breakfast time was a popular time. If you're willing to take it later in the day, it costs less. And if that was still too expensive, it was possible to rent the previous day's paper. So the newsboy had to accommodate all of these um, orders and then make the collections and the deliveries, and for the rental market, the re-deliveries. Um, that took them to about nine in the morning. By now, he's been working for about four hours. Uh, he would stop for breakfast, which was usually a roll, which cost a penny on the street. And then they would go be sent out by the newsagent 
to stand on the street and sell newspapers to passers-by. They would do that till one o'clock. They would stop for lunch, which was usually another penny roll. Sometimes, because let's not forget, these were children. Sometimes if they had mothers who lived nearby, a lot of working class women performed piecework at home. They did sewing for subcontractors. They made matches or they made artificial flowers. Both of these very common jobs, both of these notoriously poorly paid. Or they made sacks and bags for other industries. So the boys who had mothers who lived nearby might go home for lunch. But of course, many of these women would be out at work themselves. They would be charwomen, cleaning ladies. They would be laundresses. They would be market porters. They would be street sellers. So for those children whose mothers did not were not at home or did not live close enough, then they too would eat on the street, as of course would the many, many children who had no mothers at all because they died. Um, after lunch, they would go back and sell in the street again. Then it was back to the shop to prepare the afternoon papers because in those days there were morning papers and there were afternoon papers. There were new editions printed during the day. And these, again, they would bundle up. They would take to the post office to be mailed. The last mail out of the city was at 6 p.m. So once the boys had done that, they had finished. Um, They had finished their 14- or 16-hour day jobs, aged possibly 8 or 10, ready to walk home. Um, And their day was over until three hours before dawn the next day. It's interesting when talking about people from different time periods in history, because I think, as my guest today mentioned, it's very easy for us to say, oh, well, uh, human beings have been the same throughout history, no matter what time period in history you're talking about. We're all the same, and we all experience the same things as all human beings do. And I think there's a slight amount of truth in that. Human beings will always experience the same intrinsic emotions. But if you look at, say, someone from the 21st century, and you look at a member of the working class who lived in the Victorian city of London, their worldview, their emotional makeup, their really experience of life as a human being is going to be so intrinsically different. It's absolutely remarkable how a member of the working class during Victorian London did anything that he could to make, you know, four pence, um, just abysmally low amounts of money, but that it wasn't just a few people. It wasn't just a handful of people who lived these horrendous existences. No, it was the majority of society. The working class was the backbone of society during the Victorian era. And to me, that's fascinating. And it's fascinating how someone as successful as Charles Dickens, this best-selling English novelist who emerged during the Victorian era, was among the working class. During his days at the blacking factory, um, of course, we can experience hints of his personal experience through his work, such as Oliver Twist. Um, 
it's it's interesting that you have this great success who emerged out of the working class. And I think that success story as well is a product of the Victorian era, this ability that this ability for one to pick himself up by his bootstraps and go from a member of the working class to somebody who was a self-made man. I think that as well is an element of the Victorian era, which should not be overlooked. The biggest difference between the working and the more prosperous classes were the working lives of women. As I said, one of the most of these boys had working mothers. Working class women worked. We have this notion from fiction, from television, from movies, that 19th century women didn't work. Rich 19th century women didn't work. Even the middle classes had women who worked. And while it's generally said that one of the definitions of being middle class is that women didn't work, it means that they worked at home and they weren't paid. So magically, the extraordinarily heavy labor they did in the house somehow didn't count. But you have to remember, this was an age before detergents. This was an age where both heating and cooking was done over coal fires, which covered everything in soot and smoke. Most houses had no running water. The houses that did mostly had a coal tap in the basement. Um, It could take two adult women a full two days of 12-hour labor just to do the laundry. Somebody had to get up at three or four in the morning to start heating the water on those days. So our notions of women sitting around embroidering to stave off boredom was a luxury that was known to a tiny minority of women. Pretty well everyone in the Victorian age worked, and they worked in a way that thankfully we can barely imagine. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, Judith Flanders, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and learning all about this um, history of the city of London during the Victorian era. But before I let you go today, would you be so kind as to direct our listeners where they might find your books and more information about you and your work? Well, I have a website, uh, judithflanders.com, so that's not very complicated. And otherwise, I sincerely hope my publisher has the book in all good bookstores now, as well as online and anywhere else you might try. Wonderful. And I encourage all of you listening to pick up a copy of the book. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today, Judith Flanders. It's difficult to imagine the relentless lifestyles of Victorian London's working class one can only obtain a glimpse of this unbearable reality through first-hand accounts and period literature such as Dickens' novels. During this period, the British Empire was an industrial behemoth and London was its capital, home to six million people, most of whom were working-class men, women, and children. We all owe a great debt to Dickens for portraying Victorian London so vividly and allowing people to experience this period in history through his works for years and years to come. 
Thank you all so much for listening today. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving it a positive rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform. And do be sure to check out all of the wonderful podcasts offered by the Searcy Institute Podcast Network and subscribe, rate, and review to those as well. I'm Noah Tetzner, and this has been Victoria's World. Oh,